The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Those guys are up there, and it is windy, and they don't have anything to put over their mic to shield the wind, so they just pulled gloves out of their bag and threw a glove on, and it looked like he was singing into an udder. You know, it was just, it was funny. You know, I mean, it was, um, and all night long, they're freezing. Nobody's really out there listening to them. Um, Those guys had wonderful attitudes the whole night. And then halfway through the night, um, just so you know, because you didn't get to see this, we had Travis come, and, uh, and this is not about Travis, I'm not trying to put Travis on a pedestal, but we just had Travis come and just share his story of what God has done through the grace in his life. And uh, it was amazing for me to watch as people that just sort of had meandered through, they were kind of maybe transitioning from cakewalk or hayride or hot dogs or whatever, and as Travis is telling his story, I watched And one woman in particular I watched, she just sort of was listening and just sort of slowed down as she was walking through and wound up walking over and pulling out one of the metal chairs and just sitting down and listening. And she heard, and there were others that were standing out there and heard the gospel. And so I just want to thank you for a collective effort to say to our community, we love you. We love you, and God, we believe, has placed us right here in order to do just that. We love you so much that we want you to have a great time, but we want there to be more than that. We want you to hear what God has done. That's why we do this. And so I just want to say thank you as your pastor for that. I look around every single week, and I am humbled at the service that goes on behind the scenes that never needs any kind of accolades or attention. And so I just want to acknowledge you, whether you are a Sunday school teacher or a worship leader or a sound person or driving a tractor or whatever, okay? Thank you. We are the church, right, for this community. And so that was a a good thing for my heart to hear. Well, Ephesians 2 this morning, we continue to walk through here. And uh, before I read my text, I have an idea for an experiment. As we leave today, what do you say we all get in our cars and uh, whether we drive to a restaurant or we drive home, we, don't, we, we commit ourselves not to look out the front windshield at all. But we're just going to drive by looking in the rearview mirror. How do you think that's going to go? How many of you are getting out of the parking lot? Right? Probably not many of you. Right? I mean, you're, you can't even get out of the parking lot before you've ran into somebody, right? Uh, perhaps uh, you, you, you do pretty well. You get out of the parking lot and you get on the road, but you're not looking through that windshield. You're driving forward, but you're looking in that rearview mirror. How long do you think it's going to be before someone calls the police on you? Hey, there's a drunk driver out here, right? And you get pulled over and you have a ticket. Or worse, you run over somebody or you wreck into somebody, right? Probably every single one of us, we would cause the greatest traffic jam between here and 290 that there ever has been, right, if we do this experiment. So I I jest whenever I tell you that's an experiment. Don't anybody go out of here and, like, try to explain to the cops. My pastor told me, you know, that's not what I'm saying. I'm telling you, don't do this. I say this to make a point. In today's passage, Paul is going to show us that in order for us to move forward as God would have us to, that we do have to look back, that we do have to look up at that rearview mirror, and we have to look back at what we were before we knew Christ. Predominantly this morning, this is a message to Christians. 
If you are not a Christian here today, you can still learn from this and glean. And I, I pray, hear the good news of Christ. But for Christians, in order for us to move forward, we have to spend a little bit of time looking backwards in that rearview mirror. But if all we ever do is look backwards in that rearview mirror, we will wind up in, in a world of mess, right? We will make wrecks out of our lives. We must also look ahead at what is in front of us, what God says is true of us. And then by looking backwards and now looking at what's in front of us, then we can move forward as God would have us to. So that is setting up the text for this morning. If you will, follow along with me. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. The Bible says, Therefore remember, look back, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the, the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, this whole series is called But God. And you may have thought, hey, the only but God in this whole book is, is in chapter 2, verse 4. No, no, here's another one right here. In verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of, of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This morning's message I've entitled, One New Man. And this is what the gospel does. And this will be the thrust, the main point of this passage. I'm committed to preach through books of the Bible. And I don't want to come creatively and sort of invent something that I think you need to hear. We need to hear what God has preserved for us in his word. And the main point of this passage that I have just read to you is this, that God has made one man where there were two. Okay, so let me just walk through this. First off. Let's look back. Let's remember. Let's look, let's look in the review mirror. In verses 11 and 12, he lists these things out of what we were as Gentiles before we knew Christ. The first thing he says is, you were segregated. In verse 11, he, he, he brings out there that the Jewish people referred to the Gentile people as the uncircumcised. And the fact that it's in quotes points to the fact that this is not just him making a distinction between those who were uncircumcised and those who were circumcised. He's, he's putting this in quotes to bring out, this is a term of derision. I mean, think of, think, think you know, kind of like the playground, being at school and how, you know, you, on the playground, you know, names are called, right? Um, you know, growing up with the name Scott, you know, my name rhymed with pot and, uh, and snot. And uh, if they called me Scotty, it was too convenient to rhyme that with potty, right? And so there were all sorts of things that I grew up with. And um, I grew up with a, with a sister named Lana, married a woman named Lana as well. How weird is that? But uh, 
Um, you know, only thing I could call her growing up was Lana Banana. It's the only thing I had, you know. And my other sister was Christy. You know, what do you do with Christy? You know, there's not, there's not a whole lot, right? Well, this is what's going on here is the Jewish people were arrogant about their position as God's chosen people. They weren't simply, it, they didn't simply feel an air of superiority. They believed they were superior. And they let it be known by saying, you uncircumcised. And it was a term of derision. The only way a Gentile could escape this um, mockery was for them to proselytize, which meant they had to turn their back on everything that they knew and convert themselves to the Jewish faith. They had to submit themselves to that. And, and this was the only way that they could escape this. And it would be one thing if it were simply the uncircumcised, and that's the only thing they ever called them. But this, I want to show you just the severity of how superior the Jewish people felt like they were over the Gentiles. The Gentiles were, were called dogs. And, and I want you to think less golden doodle and more mangy stray. And this is the way they thought of them. They were just these mangy strays. A daily prayer that a, that a Jewish man would pray would be something like this. God, thank you that I am not a woman, I am not a slave, and I am not a Gentile. And every day he thanked God for those three things. Jews believed that the Gentiles were in fact created to fuel the fires of hell. It wasn't even lawful if, if a Gentile woman was in the midst of giving birth to a child. It was not lawful to assist her because that would mean bringing another one of those into the world. And this is how the Jewish people looked at the Gentile, Gentile people. And the Gentile people really didn't look at the Jews with, with any better Vantage. They, they looked at them as if they were just scum of the earth, right? These two groups hated one another. I mean, we can get angry at this. We can see the error in this. But the reality is this was the reality of their condition, of their cultural situation. They were segregated from one another. And this is who Paul's writing to as he's writing to these now Gentile believers coming into a church with also Jewish believers, right? And so now these two groups, potential for just this backlash, are coming together in the church. And he says, remember, you were at one time segregated from one another. Not only that, he says in verse 12, uh, he says, you were also separated you were segregated and you were separated. At verse 12, at that time, separated from Christ. Being Gentiles, they had no, no Messiah. They had no Christ. After all, Jesus was, remember the sign that they placed above his head on the cross? He was the king of the who? The Jews, right? He was the king of the Jews, he did not belong to the Gentiles. They had no Messiah. Romans 9.5 tells us, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Meaning that there is, this, there, there is this heritage aspect tied to the Messiah. He came through and for the Jewish people, and the Gentiles were separated from not only just a historical figure, but a Messiah, the promised one from God. 
You were segregated. You were separated. You were alienated. Verse 12 says you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, I married a Kentucky girl. And there are about three or four different states that are called the commonwealth of. And Kentucky is one of those that is the commonwealth of Kentucky. Um, And come basketball season, if you aren't part of the commonwealth, they would look at you as if, oh, you are unfortunate. Right? If you're not part of the commonwealth of the big blue nation, you are unfortunate and you are unimportant. That's the way they kind of... I mean, you guys, if, if you've never been around Kentucky basketball... You apparently haven't because I'm telling you this is how it is, right? I didn't grow up in Kentucky. I grew up in Tennessee. We didn't know what a basketball was, really, uh, except for our women. They were really good. But uh, Big Blue Nation was it, the Commonwealth of Kentucky, right? Well, when, when Paul here says that they were alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel, it has slightly higher consequences than not being a part of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Sorry, honey. Right? It meant if they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, it meant that they were completely outside the sphere of God's election. That they had no connection at all. They were isolated from any covenant relationship with God. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So not only were they segregated and separated and alienated, they were also estranged. Verse 12 also says they were strangers to the covenants of promise. What were these promises? I just sort of did a survey and walked back through some of these covenants, the promises of the covenant with Israel. In Genesis 15, God made a promise to give them the land. In Genesis 17, God promised to to multiply them greatly, to make Abraham the father of many nations. In Genesis 17 also, to give Abraham and Sarah a son, and his name would be Isaac. In Genesis 26, God promised to bless all the nations through them. In Genesis 28, He would go with them wherever they would go. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised to establish the throne of David forever. That there would always be one on the throne of David. And these promises, the, the Gentile people are outside of these promises. They don't have these promises. There's no promise for land for them. There's no promise to be the father of many nations. There's no promise of uh, of someone to constantly forever be on the throne or for God to go with them. They were outside of this. And all of these promises that God made to Israel were in one way or another pointing to the greatest promise, which was to send the Messiah who would save them. Genesis chapter 12 God tells Abram, who would become Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And it all points to not that Abraham was going to be just this really just awesome guy. It pointed to the fact that through his bloodline there would come the Messiah. And this was a Jewish promise, and the Gentiles were left out in the cold. They were estranged from this. They were strangers to it. Romans 9, 4 again says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. So the Gentiles are left out. They have none of these promises. They are estranged from them. So not only are they segregated and separated and alienated and estranged, they are without hope. 
The last part of verse 12 says, having no hope. If the Bible is true, let me just ask this question. If the Bible is true, what type of hope does a person outside of Christ have in this world? I mean, we're not talking here about hopes and dreams and aspirations for this life. I mean, if, if that's what the Bible means when it says hope, then we look around and sometimes it would appear that those who are without God are the most hopeful people on the, on the planet, right? We're not talking about simply these hopes and dreams and aspirations. If, if you looked at the temporal success of the Gentile nations, perhaps it would be more feasible for us to conclude that Israel was the one who was hopeless. I mean, you look at Think back through the nations who oppressed Israel through the years. Egypt. Was there a, a more prosperous nation in the world than Egypt? They held Israel in slavery for over 400 years. You, you have Egypt and you have Babylon and you have Assyria. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, you, you have Rome. If, if the Bible is simply talking about these hopes and dreams and aspirations that make up the, the current circumstances of our lives, and it says that you are without hope, or that they were without hope, I mean, you'd say, well, I don't know about that, because I look at their life and I think, I mean, that's a pretty sweet deal. I mean, I would imagine that, that Pharaoh had it pretty nice before Moses came and said, let my people go, Right? I sometimes preach funerals. And sometimes the most hope-filled funerals are not for the people that you would think. Sometimes I preach funerals for people who have just had just, man, an awesome life. I mean, the stories they could tell, the, the success they've had in business and family and friends. I mean, you know, the place just fills up and all this. And, and you think, man, that was a successful, hope-filled person right there. Well, not necessarily. Sometimes the most hope-filled funerals that I preach are for those whose lives didn't exactly go according to the way they would have planned it out. Sometimes I'm preaching funerals for people who cancer has won. Sometimes I, I preach funerals for people who all their lives had meager incomes, very few possessions to show. Sometimes I preach funerals for, for people who lived in obscurity and they were sort of insignificant all their lives. I mean, and, and sometimes I stand in those rooms and I stand up here to front like this and I preach to a room that's almost empty. But you know, sometimes from the outside looking in, those people who seems like they have the, the least amount of hope and now their life has come to an end and, and they died without any hope, sometimes those are the most hope-filled funerals I ever preach because I can stand confidently in that podium and say, this person forsook the world and followed Christ. And because of that today, they have assurance of knowing where they are. And this is the hope that the Bible speaks of. I always, when I preach one of these funerals, I try to include a, a strange verse from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 2 that says, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. And what I, the reason I share that is because we are in that moment in the house of mourning. 
We are at a funeral. People are mourning, right? And the Bible here says, it makes no bones about it, that it is better to be in that place than it is to be at the greatest party you will ever attend. Because when you're at the greatest party you will ever attend, you will give no thought to what is beyond this world. That when you stand or sit at a funeral service of someone, you are forced to face death. And what's beyond this? Do I have any hope? And what Paul is pointing out here is that for the Gentiles, before they knew Christ, when they laid it to heart, they were left wanting. What they wanted was hope. And they didn't have any hope. So they were, they were segregated and they were separated and they were alienated and they were estranged and they were without hope and they were without God. The Bible here says the very last part of verse 12 tells us that they were without hope and they were without God, right? And this doesn't mean that they weren't religious people. In fact, if you think back on when, when Paul, in his day, he's there at the Areopagus, he, he's in Athens, and the philosophers of the day are curious about this guy. And they kind of think, well, man, he's just this babbler. He's just sort of just spouting this stuff. But they invite him to come to the Areopagus and, and, and share with them and talk to them about what it is he's, he's talking about. And when he comes, he says to them in Acts chapter 17, when I was walking around your city, I noticed that you're a very religious people. You have lots of gods. You have, you have lots of these statues. I, in fact, even noticed that you had a statue to an unknown god. In other words, they were so religious that in case they had forgotten one or were unaware of one, they just made this blanket statue and said, well, just in case, here you go. How's that? What, what, what Paul is meaning here, he's not saying that they are not religious people. The Gentiles were a very religious people. But he is telling the truth when he says they are without God. The, all the religions of this world will leave us without God. This is made poignant or, or, or made, made clear to us in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 14 through 17. And I just want to read this to you because this points out the, the godlessness of religion or idolatry. Listen to these verses, Isaiah 44, 14 through 17. It, it speaks of, of a person who crafts these idols. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it, and he warms himself. He kindles a fire, and he bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it, and he's satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Ah, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it makes into a god, his idol, falls down and he worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. And the point of this in Isaiah is to show us just how idiotic this is. For a person to take something and, and for half of it to use it in this sort of just unholy, secular way, I'm going to build a fire, I'm going to cook my supper over it, I'm going to warm my feet by it, Right? And the other half of it, you turn it into a God and you bow down before it and say, deliver me for you are my God. This is, this is idiotic. And we say, well, man, I'm glad I don't live in days like that anymore. 
We do the same thing today. We make a God out of things that cannot hold that weight. We look around at the things that capture our affection and have our, our devotion. And oftentimes we realize that we treat them a whole lot more like God than we treat God like God. And he says to them that you were segregated and you were separated and you were alienated and you were estranged and you were without hope and you were without God. This was their reality. If we stopped here, and remember he's talking to Gentiles here who have become believers, but if we just stopped here and he's just talking to Gentiles and he's comparing their condition up against the condition of Jewish people, if we didn't know the rest of the story, we would be tempted to stop here and say, well, the conclusion is we should all convert to Judaism. Because it sounds like what he's saying is that they alone have been given access to Christ that they alone are God's elect people, that they alone have the covenant with all the promises, they alone appear to have an exclusive, uh, exclusive cl- claim on hope and access to God. And so why don't we just all convert to Judaism? But the text is clear that the problem is not only for those Gentiles before they knew the Lord, but it was also the case for those Jewish believers who had been converted to Christ also. It's made clear in the text in verse 16 when Paul there says that there was a need for, the, for God to reconcile both of them. See that word in your text? To reconcile us both to God. In other words, both of us were segregated. Both of us were separated. Both of us were alienated. Both of us were without hope. And both of us were without God because the law given by God was never meant to save the Jewish people. The law given by God was meant to point out to them and to show them their inability to keep the law and their need for the Messiah. And what they did was they took instead what God gave them as a gift to point them to the Christ, and instead they hijacked it and made it their own God. So outside of Christ, Gentiles and Jews are segregated and separated and alienated and without hope and without God in this world. It's helpful for us to, to look back. It's, I mean, no matter when, where we were born or what family we were born into, we still need to be reconciled to God. No matter how much access we've had to the Scriptures and the Gospel, we still need to appropriate the Gospel by faith. We've got to believe it for ourselves. We can't coast in on Grandma's faith, right? We can't coast in on church membership. No matter how great our circumstances appear in this life, if we don't have Christ, we're without hope. And we're in need of grace. No matter how religious we are, we are godless if we are without Christ. It's helpful for us to to look backward. That's why Paul starts here and he says, Remember, remember these things. Look in the rearview mirror. But he never tells us to drive by looking in the rearview mirror. It is helpful for us to look backward, to remember our condition before Christ, but we will be more thankful if we do. Our, our worship will be more stronger and deeper and more robust by looking back at what we, 
once we were, that God never intends us to only look backwards. The second thing that we've got to do is we've got to look at what's in front of us. This is the second point today. Remember, look back, and then today, right now, look at what's in front of you. Verses 13 through 16 makes it clear, and I won't go as in-depth here, in verses 13 through 16, tells us that we have been reconciled to God. That those who once were far off have been brought near. That we've been invited to draw near and give an access to God. Right? Not only have we been reconciled to God, but we have been united as one new man. There no longer is Jew and Gentile. There is now the follower of Christ. Verse 14, this is made evident when in verse verse 14 he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. It's pointing here to that there is no room in the church of Jesus Christ for us to separate ourselves based on whether we're religious or not religious. Or whether we grew up in church or we came to Christ later on. We we don't have that prerogative. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. It has no place in the church of God. Verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body. Some people would look at that and think, oh, he's talking about the body of Jesus. That he reconciled us through the body of Jesus. But he's, he's going to talk about that in a minute. But right there, he's meaning the body of Christ, the church. That we become one when we come into the church of Christ. He has killed the hostility. Now, let me just go back into sort of some Old Testament history here. So don't check out for a second. But this is, I I love the fact that God gives us like object lessons. When I was a youth minister a long time ago, we used to do children's sermons. And I used to have to come up with these children's sermons every week. And I'd come in with some stupid little thing. We were talking about it in staffing the other day. I'd come in with with a, you know, tube of toothpaste and a paper plate and I would have a kid squeeze out all the toothpaste on the plate and I'd say okay now put it back in the, in the tube and they'd look at me and go I can't there's your object your words once they're out there you can't take and you do all this stupid thing you know all every week right well, God knows that we learn this way and so God gives us these object lessons and even the temple is meant to be an object lesson it is meant to show us what we have in Christ. There were two dividing walls in the temple. The first is the one probably you're thinking of, and it is the veil. It separated the people of God from the presence of God, from the Holy of Holies, right? It was the holy place, it was the Holy of Holies. And only one time a year, and only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and even then they tied ropes to him because if he had sin on his life, God might just kill him in there and they may have to drag him out, right? This was serious. The, the, man, this was a dividing wall. The second dividing wall in the temple was out in the courtyard, and there was an actual sign that's been recovered in archaeology that was placed on a wall that separated where the Gentiles could go from where the Jews could go. And this sign reads something like this. Any Gentile that goes beyond this, this sign is responsible for his own death. 
This was a serious deal. They took this very seriously. And in the temple, there was the veil that separated the people from God's presence, and there was the wall that separated the Gentiles from the Jews. When Jesus died, he's on the cross, and he said, it is finished. What happened to that first divider, that veil? It was torn from the top to the bottom, right? When Jesus died, what he, what he said there, what he did for us was there was, no more, there was no more legal system. He took away the ceremonial law there, and, and we were no longer separated from God's presence by some veil. Instead, in his flesh, his flesh was torn for us, and he opened access to God. That we now have, it's torn from top to bottom, no longer people separated from God's presence. Through Christ, we have un- unhindered access through him, right? That second divider, that wall out in the courtyard, well, it wasn't until 70 AD that the temple is torn down, but if, if the veil now and the whole sacrificial system is rendered useless, then what happens to the wall in the courtyard? Isn't it rendered useless as well? I mean, no longer are, are the Gentiles to be separated from the Jews, Instead, Christ has, verse 14 says, broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. We we need to look at what's in front of us. We need to look and see that we have been in Christ reconciled to God. And here's the beautiful part. This is the point of the message to one another. We've been reconciled to one another. And the question begs itself, How? Hang with me, okay? Hang with me. The the question begs itself, well, how? I mean, how has the dividing wall of hostility been torn down, right? How does this happen? Well, the text tells us. Verse 13, Jesus paid for our sin. We know this because it says, by the blood of Christ. The Bible elsewhere tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, right? Jesus paid for our sin by shedding his own blood. He paid for our sin. Therefore, the access between us and God is opened wide because the thing that separates us from him has been eradicated. Our sin has been removed, right? But then how are we reconciled to one another? How does, how does, how does Jesus and the cross affect me being reconciled Jew to Gentile or to one another, right? Well, it's also in the text. Verse 15 tells us that Jesus accomplished our righteousness. Verse 15 says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. See, you and I are saved not simply by Jesus' death on the cross. And I don't mean to make light of the cross because without the cross, you and I, it's pointless for us to be here. We are saved. Our sins are atoned for at the cross. But we are also saved by the very life of Christ. That he lived for us. That he lived a perfectly righteous, obedient life in our place. That he didn't just die as our substitute, he lived as our substitute. And our sins are forgiven in his death, and we have the righteousness given to us, imputed to us, credited to our account, so that not only are we forgiven in God's sight, but we are completely righteous in God's sight. And this makes all the difference. I want you to hear this 
through the filter, I want you to hear Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, through the filter of Ephesians 2, 11 through 18. So basically, what we just talked about, now listen to Hebrews chapter 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, we've been reconciled to God. Come near to Him. But then it goes on. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We have been reconciled to one another. We, we come as the family of God. We look back and we see that we were segregated and separated and, and we were alienated and we were without hope and we were without God, but God through the cross and by abolishing the law expressed in ordinances, has reconciled us to God and to one another. And now we respond. Now we respond in verses 17 and 18. He came and preached peace to all of us. We all got here the same way. There's not one of us that's, that's truly a child of the Father apart from hearing the gospel and responding by faith. Romans 10 tells us that unless they hear, they're not going to respond, right? Realizing that no one has access to God, Jew or Gentile. But then realizing that God, only through Jesus Christ, gives us access to Him. It cuts out all the boasting. That's what we looked at last week, that We're not saved by our own works or by our own efforts. and It's not our idea. It's His from beginning to end. Cuts out all the boasting. Nobody can be here in this place and say, well, you know, and be a little braggadocious about it. No one is closer to God because maybe they've been a Christian longer. No one's... one's, Closer to God because they stand and give their testimony and say, well, I was saved when I was five years old. I really never really knew that much about sin, but God saved me. No one's closer to God by that testimony, and no one's further away from God when they have a testimony that says, for years I was strung out and I was hopeless, and man, I, I just ruined everybody's lives around me, but God, man, he radiated into my life and saved me by his grace. He's not further away. She's not closer to God. We are one in Christ. It changes drastically the way that we relate to one another. When the Jew can't come and say, and I don't, it sounds as if I'm, I'm derogatory there. I'm, historically, when the, when the Israelite comes and he says, well, I, can know, I, I can't come any closer to God by keeping the law or by sacrifice. I, I just can't do it. I can only come to God through the one path that is the death of Christ and the life of Christ. And when the Gentile comes and says, no matter how religious I have been, 
it gets me nowhere closer to God. And they realize both of them have to come the same path to God. Then it reconciles us. We realize, according to verse 19, that we have been made fellow citizens. We realize that we have been made members of the household of God, right? That we are family here. That's why we refer to ourselves as the faith family here at Ebner Creek. There's no place for prejudice or racism in the church. You know, if, if you go back up, and you go to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1 through 3, and it, we remind ourselves again, looking back and looking at what we were outside of Christ, and we were, we were enslaved to the world and to the flesh and to the devil. Look, the way of the world is for us to, to separate from one another, choose sides, divide off. The way of the devil is for us to accuse and to use people. The way of the flesh is to think, me first, me first, Right? We're not that anymore. We are not that anymore. It changes the way we love. We love those who already are believers who are also a little different than us. I mean, let's be honest. None of us are alike. I mean, you ever, I say this to you. I've said this before. But look around. There are people in this room that if it weren't for the gospel of Christ, you probably wouldn't be hanging out with them. Right? We're just different from one another. Like, we wouldn't choose, like, hey, Let's, let's hang out. Let's go on vacation together, right? I mean, years ago when I first came to be your pastor and I, you guys had voted to call me as pastor, I moved my stuff here, and before I started, went to the beach. I'm at the beach with my family, and I look over, and Wayne Johnson's there, right? Wayne just woke up. No, I'm just kidding. Wayne's been awake. <laughs> and I'm sitting, and what I like to do when I go to the beach is I like to sit and eat and read, Right? And I'm sitting by the pool, and I'm reading, and I'm just, you know, talking to my family and just having a good time. And every 30 minutes or so, here goes Wayne by, you know. And we knew one another were there, and Wayne was on the pastor search team, and that's how I knew him. And, and uh, he'd go by. And one time he goes by, and he's got a fishing pole, you know, and he's going out there, and he's out there for 30 minutes. Next thing I know, he's coming back with a fishing pole. Catch anything? No, they weren't biting. And he comes back out, and he's got something else, like a boogie board. And he's just back and forth. And I'm like, I don't vacation that way. I sit and I eat and I read, right? That's what I do. Wayne, active man. Man, he's going to, he vacations with a purpose. Like robust vacationing, right? That's Wayne Johnson. Well, let's, we could all point to things like that, that we're so different from one another, but yet we are called to love one another. And we love one another because we have been loved in Christ. And because he shed his blood for us and he abolished the law for us and we have access to him. Not only to love those who already are believers who are different from us, but also, here's the end, to love those who are not yet believers who are different from us. You heard Matt at the beginning inform you, you heard Stephen on the video inform you about unengaged, unreached people groups in the southern part of India, right? Man, sit there, my heart just kind of swells with pride. I look at Stephen and I say, man, this is a guy who grew up, I mean, he's from Greenwood, 96 South Carolina, right? And 
And he's living. He took his family, moved. He moved to Sri Lanka and southern India, right? I mean, everything. That's awesome, right? And, and, and this is not to put Stephen on, on a pedestal, but we look at that and we say, that is, that is great. But we can't applaud in a missionary the engagement of an unreached people group while we refuse to engage the unreached people groups right here among us. We are hypocritical if we do. See, the fact that Jesus has spilled his blood for us and he's lived his life for us and given us access to God means that we not only will love those who come in, but we will also love those who are still out there who are different from us. We will not, we will not do as the Jewish people did and look, at the, look out there and say, dogs, fuel for the fires of hell. We cannot, we must not. We must engage. Some people seem to prefer to drive their Christian lives, their Christian cars, if you will, by looking more out the rearview mirror than at the windshield. They paralyze themselves by, I'm not worthy. Uh, and it's almost as if they are saying, these things are still true about me. I'm still segregated, and I'm still separated, and I'm still alienated, and I'm still without hope, and I'm still without God. See, God never intended for us to go through life and progress through life as a believer now by only looking backwards. It is a good thing to look backwards. It, man, it reminds us of where we were, but it doesn't call us to say that's still who I am. Instead, God says, man, look out the windshield because this is who you are in me. Now drive. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful, God, for your love, for your sacrifice, for your life on our behalf. God, I pray that for the person who's heard this today, Lord, there are several in this room, and God, there will be others later that listen on a podcast. And God, I just pray that you would take this, Lord, take my words, and Lord, that you would remove anything that's not of you, and God, that you would take what is from you, Lord, and that you would do what I can't, and that is to take it beyond the head to the heart and you would cause the ears of our hearts to hear. Lord, that there might be people who respond in faith to the message today. God, that you alone might be glorified. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to give you an opportunity to reflect and to respond. Those two words are chosen carefully. We, we often rush through life and we hear a message and we never take the time to actually reflect on it. Spend some time right now just thinking about what you've heard. Thinking about what maybe it requires of you. What does it call for in your life? We're not preaching legalism here, but if you are a believer, the Spirit of God lives inside of you to apply the Word of God. And then the second word that we've chosen there is to respond. Respond. Whatever God's called you to, take the action steps to walk in it. Uh, perhaps you need to speak with me. Perhaps you're here today and you heard the gospel and you need to be saved. You realize that the first part of that is your story, but you don't know the but God part. I'll be down here on the front. I'd love to speak with you. Whatever it is God's called you to. Maybe it's to join this church. Maybe it's 
just to ask for prayer, whatever it is. Come see me. Go pray with people in the prayer room to my right. But respond. Finish the sermon by applying it through the power of the Spirit. Let's worship God. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.